Before we begin, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. In particular, a huge debt of thanks to our cabinet member level supporter, Arlena Frank-Waller. Your support is critical to the success of this podcast. Another thank you is owed to our ambassador-level supporters, Jeff Flores and Todd Kent. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. Together, we are reaching the top government podcast charts in countries ranging from Europe to Asia, and we are just getting started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Diplomatist Podcast, and as always, I'm your host, Garrison Murado, and today I'm delighted to have a guest on board the podcast from Japan, Mr. Yoichiro Sato, who is an expert on all things Japanese security and geopolitics. Mr. Sato, it is an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Sir, would you mind just giving a brief background to the listeners of some of your particular expertise and some of the roles you've held in this field? Sure, yeah. Well, I'm currently professor at Ritzmaker Asia-Pacific University in a city called Beppu in Japan. And prior to this job, I also worked at the U.S. Department of Defense Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies in Honolulu, Hawaii for about uh, eight and a half years. I want to turn your attention towards a security topic in the geopolitics of East Asia, which has certainly sure. always been... Uh, important for Japan as a major economic power, a member of the G7, one of the world's most important democracies, and certainly in the region, arguably the most important democracy. But things have gotten, I would say, elevated tension-wise, certainly during the Trump administration era, and particularly with the rise of Xi Jinping with China and so on. There has been more security questions surrounding Chinese involvement in the region. And so I was hoping to get your perspective, the view from Japan. How does Japan view the current geopolitical situation in the region? What with North Korea as a near neighbor, obviously, what with China and some of the, the trade negotiations, just kind of the broad overview of, of how the outlook looks currently. Sure, yeah. The Japanese leadership sees the country's security situation is quite severe for the last couple of years, and there's very little sign of improvement. Let's start with North Korea. North Korea has not refrained from uh, developing nuclear weapons and basically uh, the disarmament process, which was agreed back in 2008, has not made any progress despite a couple of summit meetings between the uh, US President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And meanwhile, North Korea Korea has uh, constantly improved both the bomb itself and also the, the means of delivery, which is long-range ballistic missiles. And also, uh, this is particularly important for Japan, more for Japan than for the United States, but uh, North Korea is modifying its short-range ballistic missiles so that uh, the missiles would fly in a very unpredictable trajectories and hence it's very difficult to intercept. So with that kind of improvement, Japan is having uh, difficulty keeping up with uh, the defense against those missiles. And on top of that, uh, Japan 
was to deploy Aegis ashore system to it's a ground based Aegis system to shoot down the incoming ballistic missiles. But there were some issues with the local municipalities and population there that the booster may actually fall on the ground rather than on the sea. And mm. and uh, the government decided to cancel this uh, Aegis ashore. And now the alternative recently has been decided to be on a sea base. So but this kind of development requires some time and additional budget. And so there will be a kind of gap in uh, capacity development. So, so that's only about North Korea. And when you start talking about China, there will be tons of issues, but uh, I'll focus on a couple of them. And one is uh, definitely the territorial dispute around the Senkaku Islands, which Japan currently has administrative control, but China has been sending the, its Coast Guard vessels into the territorial water around this island. The number of days China, those Chinese public vessels are present inside the territorial water has been rising uh, since last year. And uh, this year, too, most likely uh, China will make their presence more regular than ever. And this is a kind of challenge in terms of uh, the legal challenge because if China can claim that the public vessels are constantly present there, that hurts Jap- Japan's claim of uh, the administrative control to some degree. Mm-hmm. So, and Japan is even more afraid that uh, Chinese ships may not be just sitting there, but they are already chasing Japanese fishing vessels. And if China makes uh, enforcement moves against the Japanese fishing vessels, that will really complicate the handling of the situation because Japanese Coast Guard would have to respond and and the use of arms and so forth may actually give Chinese an excuse to start the invasion. So it's a very sensitive issue right now, and the government is dealing with this in a very delicate manner. In the medium term, I think the challenge is China's overall naval development and also the Chinese strategy to break through the, the Ryukyu archipelago and into the open Pacific. So China is already building its third aircraft carrier and Japan is currently retrofitting one of the flat top destroyers to to be able to carry F-35B fighter planes. Yes, yes. Yeah. This kind of naval competition continues on the surface but also under the sea as well. China has been building its submarine fleet, and so is Japan. So the naval competition will characterize the Sino-Japanese relations in the midterm for uh, for the security dimension. A very fascinating look at what's been going on there, and and some of those things, such as the the medium-range missiles from North Korea and uh, the sub the sub Cold War, if you will, between China and Japan. Those are things that don't get much coverage on this side of the Pacific in the United States. So we appreciate that that insight. You know, and it does bring me to kind of one of the the interesting dichotomies or, or paradoxes, if you will, 
between East Asian relations generally that South Korea and, and Japan, the Philippines and, you know, Taiwan, Australia, a little further out into the uh, into the Pacific, they all have to deal with China. You all have to trade with China. It's a reality that they're there, but there is that security tension because of China's global ambitions. But one of those complicating aspects that would seem to be bearing fruit is the issue of trade because China is the second largest economy in the world. Recently, at the end of last year, Japan was a signatory to the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or the RCEP, uh, which they signed alongside Australia, Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, South Korea, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, and of course, China. Is this sort of a new direction for Japanese trade uh, to sign on to, to this sort of a partnership, or is this a, a continuance of their classic... Uh, your classic emphasis on multilateral trade. Japan was negotiating the the RCEP on one hand and TPP on the other, and those two negotiations were leveraged against each other. Mm. So the RCEP didn't include the United States, and TPP didn't include China, and and that was because from Japan's perspective. Both China and the United States are protectionists, mm, and very true. In order to yeah uh, achieve the freer, the optimal free trade, Japan needed to pursue both negotiations and leverage one against the other. And you know, initially, when Obama you know uh, promoted the, the U.S. in TPP, it worked just fine for Japan. And Japan could put more efforts into TPP and less on RCEP, and you know, made China more uh, jealous about the free, ter- free trade relationship between Japan and the United States. But the, the Trump pulled the U.S. out of TPP, and it put Japan in a uh, really difficult situation. Yes, yes, and he did. So Japan had to shift its energy into negotiating RCEP and, and also negotiating free trade with the European Union as well in order to uh, put some pressure on the United States back. Yes. And, and Japan did exactly that. But the difficulty with RCEP, as you know, the India pulled out in the last minutes and Japan had to really make a lot of compromises to keep India in. And, and those compromises meant that uh, the agreement was not as free as Japan wished. So, so it's a compromise agreement, but it has been signed. Japan's still hoping that India will come back, but it's a very difficult domestic issue for India. So most likely that will not happen. And the other difficulty is because RCEP was signed, the incentive to pursue long suspended Trilateral free trade between Japan, South Korea, and China. This negotiation actually started even before the RCEP, but because some of the political difficulties, not only the territorial disputes between Japan and China, but uh, historical memory issues between South Korea and Japan also, put a hard stop on the trilateral uh, free trade negotiation. And this is serious because China is Japan's number one trade partner and Korea is Japan's number three trade partner. So for Japan, it's a big deal, but it had to be embedded in a less 
It's interesting to see those those overlapping currents of, of geopolitics between the Trans-Pacific Partnership, like you mentioned, and the RCEP, and uh, then the trilateral negotiations and how that's all played out with time. And it, it does bring us to the issue of, of international relations and, and soft power. In addition to that security element we talked about earlier, Japan's a highly influential culture as well. You know, Japanese food's very common in the West, karate, judo, and of course, even brands such as Hello Kitty, Pokemon. Japan plays a large cultural role on the world stage. And one of its largest roles was due to happen last year in the form of the Summer Olympics, which has of course been delayed with COVID. Could you perhaps Give an update to the listeners as to the outlook for what the Olympics might hold this summer, whether it will take place, whether or not the government still feels that this is something that can be redeemed, or, or what's kind of the status of, of the Olympics and, and Japan's role globally in it. Yeah, well, the government just recently announced that it will go ahead with the Olympic Games, and the European Union, I think, expressed a G7 meeting, so U.S. and European Union members both expressed very strong support for Olympic Games. There were some hiccups. The president of the, the Olympic Promotion Association, former Prime Minister Mori, made some uh, remarks about uh, women in meetings, and that caused some you know, very strong international backlash, and Mori had to resign. But uh, a former athlete, Mr. Hashimoto, who was in charge of the cabinet position to promote this Olympic game. She took over the, the presidency of that association by resigning from the ministerial position. So, so I think uh, as far as the management of the Olympic preparation is concerned, uh, Japan is back on track right now. So the whole thing really depends on the, the coronavirus outbreak situation. If it subsides by summer, we will have no problem hosting the Olympic game. Well, hopefully it does subside, not only for the joy of the Olympics, but also for the, the betterment of Japan and, and the broader world. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about the, the domestic political scene in Japan, which obviously was thrown into just a little bit of upheaval and change last year uh, when Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, was unable to continue his uh, premiership due to health concerns, health issues, and he was replaced by Prime Minister Suga. Could you perhaps walk the listeners through some of Suga's main priorities thus far? Is he a continuation of many of Abe's policies, or has he uh, taken his own route on many things, or what, what's kind of the status of uh, the outlook there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Suga was a cabinet secretary for the entire duration of the, the last Abe cabinet, and uh, his policy very much uh, succeeded Abe's policy. And the Suga's own policy, there really isn't much of it, uh, except uh, some reform in uh, telecommunication that he was discussing. So uh, both domestic policy, foreign policy, he will continue uh, Abe line of uh, policy, which is made of very close alliance with the United States and also uh, uh, the additional alignment with Quad members and also exploring closer ties with European countries like uh, UK and France and also cultivating some security partnerships with Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam and the Philippines. All of those will continue under the Suga administration. With the uh, economic relation with China, 
is likely to continue despite you know some of the pressure from the US which is to delink the economies from China based supply chain uh, Trump was very keen on that but the, the Biden to some degree will carry that on as well and Abe told the Japanese companies to divest from China and reinvest in Southeast Asia, but uh, the Chinese market, domestic market, is so large and attractive for many Japanese companies, and relocation is not a political decision, but a business decision for most of those companies. So, so in the recent survey, only very small percentage of Japanese companies said they will divest from China. So that voice from the economic sector will be reflected on the government policy to some degree, especially uh, the Suga's back uh, Nikkei faction within the LDP is uh, very keen on closer relationship with China. Would you say that Prime Minister Suga's outlook towards the United States has been impacted much in terms of uh, living through the transition from President Donald Trump's administration to President Biden. Would you say that the view from the Japanese government is maybe one of some relief, or is it about the same towards the Biden administration as Trump? Or what sort of the prospect or outlook from from the Tokyo side of perspective uh, on the future of the Japan-U.S. relationship? Yeah, I, I think uh, there was quite a strong voice from Japan's security sector, which favored Trump, and they were very skeptical of Biden, which was kind of unfair judgment based on a very simple logic that uh, the Japanese security relationship with the U.S. worked under the Republican administration in America, and I think they have a nostalgia about the Reagan period, mm. and, and oftentimes conveniently forget what happened during the the Bush senior period and if you don't mind walk us through that for a moment sir what I'm very curious because that matters a lot to me to hear that Uh, what would you say was the nostalgia for the it was the Nakasone Reagan era correct the the partnership at the time and and what changed under H.W. Bush that you feel still has that influence because that's very important to the discussion well if you remember the the Gulf War crisis during the the Bush administration and Japan was pressured to to, uh, send troops there but failed to do so and Japan contributed huge sum of money for the US operation but basically very strong uh, criticism against Japan for uh, you know basically uh, not not contributing personnel and uh, trying to just you know, by the allies with uh, economic strength. At the time, the trade dispute was quite intense between the two countries. So it was a period of uh, crisis for the U.S.-Japan alliance during the Bush senior presidency. I see, I see. Well, I appreciate that perspective because it's easily easily forgotten amongst U.S. policymakers and for those of us in the industry such as myself wasn't even born at the time so it's good to hear that that background to know but honestly it's good to know because it's important because such things continue to ripple effect through a relationship and and what would you say about more recently the the Obama period obviously was very much dominated by trade which we kind of touched upon but there, there's sort of a narrative a media narrative on the American side that one of Trump's 
better diplomatic relations with foreign partners was with uh, Prime Minister Abe at the time. Do you think that's a fair characterization? And does that influence the perspective heading into the Biden era? Or Yeah, I think it did. I mean, to be fair, Trump, I mean, the Abe handled Trump presidency really well, I think. Abe was never, you know, trying to confront Trump in a way to bruise his ego, you know, the public image of Trump was was never challenged by Abe. Mm. So I think he understood Trump's uh, psyche quite quite well. Mm. So that didn't really, uh, you know, make Trump's policy toward Japan any better because, right. Right. you know, although Japan was an ally, the the Trump was constantly bashing Japan for for trade, mm. and 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 in Trump's mind there was a this imaginary huge trade surplus Japan was making against the United States, which is like you know, thirteen years ago, and yeah. it's a totally out, outdated perception. Trump acted very selfishly too because uh, you know he pulled the U.S. out of TPP, but then came back to Japan bilaterally and demanded the same concession Japan made in the TPP. So the beef tariff, for example, has already been lowered to the TPP equivalent level for the American beef exporters, although the U.S. is not part of TPP. On the domestic front again, inside of Japan, how does the outlook uh, appear for Prime Minister Suga? Because he was not on the ballot the last time that the LDP faced an election. And I have heard reports that his poll numbers have slipped a bit as of late. So is there a, a possibility of a, of a resignation or a leadership challenge of some kind? What's the outlook for Japan's political leadership? And we'll kind of wrap up there. Suga's first term might be very short and instead of just succeeding on a long-term basis, Suga will actually call a snap election while uh, LDP popularity is still high. This strategy was not available because uh, the coronavirus pandemic uh, progressed rather rapidly last fall and uh, Suga lost the opportunity to call an election. So, so now, given the, the various uh, the legislative calendar and so forth, the Olympic game, Suga has to sit through to the end of the current term of the the lower house of the parliament. So he cannot call an election until the Olympic is over and the lower house pretty much complete the term. By then, it will be a dead. Dead duck, I think. He'll be a total <laughs> lame duck. The party members will see no, no interest in supporting him whatsoever. So he will have to take all the blames. Uh, nobody will credit him, even if the coronavirus pandemic subsides by fall. People will forget about Suga and he will be replaced. Definitely something to keep an eye on for the outlook there. And I would ask, maybe what's your top guess for a potential replacement for Prime Minister Suga? Is there a leading candidate in your mind? Or? <laughs> that, that is a million dollar question in Japan. <laughs> but yeah, there are several candidates, of course. Uh, Ishiba hasn't quit. Uh, rising star Kono, who is currently a vaccine minister, 
after the foreign minister and defense minister portfolio. Well, definitely something to to keep an eye on going forward in the future months yeah, too. faction leaders, somebody faction leaders may pick their puppet might emerge. So it's very difficult to see how it will turn out. Well, no matter which direction it all heads, uh, we obviously wish the best to Japan as an important ally of the United States and continue the, the cooperation that's so important to us. And I know on a personal level, I thank you very much for coming on board the New Diplomatist podcast to share your expertise. And hopefully we can have you on again uh, sometime perhaps later this year, sir. Sure. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me.